There is an old children's book called Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. And the Broken Truth is a story of a star that falls to earth um, and it splits in two on the way down and only one half of the, the star or the truth is found. And it is clearly broken and yet still has um, a grain of truth to it. And the story then goes in these beautiful watercolors um, of you know these awful, awful battles that people, humans rage over it, um, trying to claim this truth for themselves. And eventually a young girl like goes to see Old Turtle and is like, why is there so much strife in the world? And Old Turtle explains the truth is broken and you need to find the other half. And she goes on this great journey and she finds the other half and the two truths are finally united again and be able to claim one whole truth. The broken truth over which people battled to claim as their own is you are loved, which is a true truth. Mm. It is not broken in and of itself, but it was broken off from its essential other half, which was and so is everyone else. Hello, and welcome back to the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Thank you for joining us again after a um, unplanned hiatus from releasing episodes just to give you a little peek behind the curtain, um, in September, I started a psychoanalytic training program and moved my family. So I have four episodes already recorded um, that should we should be able to kind of squeak out here um, in the next month or so. But the editing and producing process is fairly time consuming and things are just moving slowly. Um, I so appreciate um, all the listener feedback and I am head over heels for all these guests. So I'm eager to get these conversations to you as quickly as we can. Today, my guest is Emmy Kegler. Emmy is a pastor, author, and speaker who ministers at the margins of the church especially among LGBTQ Christians. She serves as pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Northeast Minneapolis, which is a small neighborhood congregation focused on community outreach. She is a co-leader of the Queer Grace Community, a group of LGBTQ Christians in the Twin Cities who meet for worship and fellowship. She is also the founder and editor of the Queer Grace Encyclopedia, her first book, One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins, tells her story as a queer Christian called to ordained ministry and how it formed her relationship with scripture. Her second book, Out Now, is called All Who Are Weary, Easing the Burden on the Walk with Mental Illness. All Who Are Weary offers a pastoral accompaniment to those facing symptoms and diagnoses of mental illness along with the families, friends, communities, pastors, and therapists who care for them. Today, Emmy and I talk about the extraordinary challenges of being both a pastor and a person during the last 20 months of this fracturing and fragmenting global crisis that has moved through all of our communities. Emmy and I recorded this conversation in August but every single bit of it is as timely today as it was then. Welcome 
to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Okay. I really want to be thoughtful about your time and give an opportunity to sort of dive right in. So you said in, in your Instagram stories, I, that being a pastor right now has created a real, maybe crisis of faith in the church. I, I would love for you to unpack that. What, what it's been like for you this past 18 months to be, you know, a shepherd of very disturbed and disturbing flock. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, such an excellent but also convoluted term to say shepherd right now obviously because when we start using language like sheep um, that's also been sort of co-opted from uh, traditional christian practice because it's used in in the new testament to describe um, the people that jesus cares for particularly in the gospel of john um, and now it you know it means this whole other like well you're blindly following you know whatever um mm-hmm. so yeah um it's been really interesting. I think most pastors with sort of their ear to the ground in the past five years were working with, you know, a variety, a diverse variety of disturbed situations. And I don't mean disturbed as in like what we sometimes think of as sort of in the category of of mentally unwell, um, but really just like the waters were in turmoil. Um, And I think for, for me, that definitely happened uh, with the election of Trump in 2016, um, but for others, it happened earlier or later as we dealt with, you know, crises around the Me Too movement, around um, the murder of young Black men by state forces, and those were kind of the, the major ones as far as the mainline church went. Um, and this, for the first time, was an issue that could not be avoided. Uh, I, you know, I think pastors and and their people have navigated complex political issues in the past five years and sometimes just chosen to avoid them. And this is the first political issue that really like no church could avoid. And you are speaking about vaccination and masks. Yes. um, I'm speaking about the COVID-19 pandemic in general. Okay. So the question of like, what do we believe about COVID-19? What do we believe about how we should gather? Um, because that became the major question for churches is do we continue gathering in the face of the pandemic, mm-hmm. especially prior to available vaccines? So now what we, after you know, um, basically a year of shepherding churches through that, we now are in this throw of maybe four or five months since vaccines have become widely available. And this question of what do we do about the people who are not only vaccine hesitant, um, people who don't have access, people who worry about having to take a day off work because they've heard stories about how um, triggered your immune response can be, uh, you know, people who maybe have heard rumors and are anxious about it, people who are thinking about preg- getting pregnant or who are pregnant and are, have heard rumors. Um, I'm not talking so much about that vaccine hesitant. I'm talking about people who are actively against vaccination and actively against wearing a mask or any kind of mask mandate. And that's where we've really hit, um, I think, for a lot of pastors, this this wall. We've been struggling in a lot of different ways with what do we do with congregations that are diverse politically around issues that I've named before. But now it's like 
this isn't a matter of public health and people's literal physical safety. And we have 30% of the country choosing not to engage with that. For a lot of pastors, that's been, it is the breaking point um, of like, how many years have I, have we been talking about showing compassion and following Jesus, taking up your cross, right? Self-sacrifice, um, you know, the, the willingness to put others first, love your neighbor, um, be the good Samaritan who stops and takes care of the other person, even if you don't know them or like them. And it's, it, and people are actively resisting this. Um, and what I'm seeing among some of, among many of my pastoral colleagues who serve in mainline churches like mine um, where they feel very convicted that vaccination is good, that masks are helpful, that, that we're at our breaking point. And we also don't really have the capacity to be at our breaking point because we don't have skills that transfer to basically any other market. <laughs> but I've, I've heard friends joke about like, I'm just going to go be a bartender or a barista because that feels easier. Like we're looking at moving from master degree level you know, work into entry-level jobs simply because we will no longer have to be responsible for the health of a whole community and have to take the slings and arrows of trying to have that responsibility. Yeah, I told you in our in our messages that I work mm -hmm. with a couple of um, pastors in my private practice, and I also work with a handful of healthcare professionals, and I've actually heard the same thing from both vocations yep um yep. i'd rather you know i'd rather i think maybe i'd rather sell stuff on etsy or you know work at a drive-through than have to contend with people who seem to not care at all about anything other than their own ideology yep and there's my impression is that you know the the ideology that we're talking about here is um more cultural and political than it is spiritual you know so it it in a pastoral setting i imagine um and have heard that one of the real points of grief is um to to feel like people are consumed with something um that they're kind of relatively ignorant of or like unconscious of that there's not a lot of consciousness around what has really gripped them and it often gets accredited to some kind of religious conviction but it that doesn't have any legs there's no there's no roots in the actual theology and um gospel of Jesus. Right. Masks, you know, uh, masks cover the face, you know, we're all made in the image of God and masks are covering the face of God, um, which is fascinating uh, in, in so many ways, because it's just what, what? <laughs> do the rest of our clothes not apply? Like I only have the face of God, but my arms are not of God. So I can cover my arms. And in fact, um, as someone assigned female at birth, I should cover my arms so as not to tempt the men folk. Yeah. Um, but but my face must remain uncovered. Okay. Uh huh. All right. This is interesting. Mm. 
so yeah, we're, we're in this, you're right that if I were to say to someone what you're expressing here is cultural and political, not spiritual, they would argue with me. No, this is, this is a faith, but this is about faith. This is about faith over fear. This is about trusting in God. This is, you know, um, there are, there's religious language tied up in it. And that's been true of dominant religious faith. And especially I'll critique my own tradition of Christianity really since the third or fourth century when we started binding up Christianity with systems of power. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that happening in you know, persecution of uh, the indigenous peoples in America um, when settlers um, and, um, and colonizers begin to land of like, God has given us this land and we must destroy the people in it just as the Israelites did in the conquest of Canaan. We see that in the enslavement of um, people stolen out of Africa, the God has foreordained this. We, you know, we see this in so many different forms of dominant religion, primarily Christianity, of binding up ideology and calling it religious. And then it's almost impossible to disentangle it because you start pulling at one thread and people panic. Well, if this isn't true, then nothing is true. Then God isn't real. Then Jesus can't truly save us and everything just falls apart. Um, for some people, I think that's a legitimate, like religious anxiety. And for some people that is, I want to preserve my ideology at any cost. And therefore I will call upon the highest power that I have, which is my faith to, to protect that. And I, it's very difficult to determine just from one conversation, you know, is this person you know, legitimately just so afraid of having their worldview shaken around Christianity that when I tug on one string, everything, like everything just goes, or is it this person is just so consumed with, um, an ideology of opposition that there's no point of entry for conversation. Mm. You know, when you were talking about how, um, colonizers landed and said, God has given us this land, mm -hmm. it, it reminded me of, um, you know, a fundamental observation I have made as a social scientist, which is that we seem to make God in our image. Yeah. And that, that that drive to identify with God, um, I think lives in all of us and is only dangerous when we're unconscious of that drive. Right. You know, it can be um, held in consciousness and mediated in a totally different way. Right. But that's really, I think, like you've been explaining brilliantly, it's threatening to people to hold up that kind of mirror because it, it, it's as if you're saying God's not who you think God is, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which actually I guess is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, when people, you know, say things like, well, I'm coded in the blood of Jesus, so I don't need the vaccine. I'm like, Ooh, that is an entirely different theological, spiritual, and religious conviction than one that I can share. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, we hear this in conversation uh, with atheists or agnostic or, or um, ex-evangelicals or post-Christians, people who say like, I was raised in the Christian faith or I was exposed to it and I left because of theology like that. And I'm like, yeah, 
I would too, if that was my only option. Mm -hmm. If the choice was either you don't believe in God or you believe that, you know, um, you can take your blood pressure medication, you can go to the doctor when you break your leg, but as far as mental illness or COVID-19, that's just covered by prayer. Um, the, <laughs> the internal cognitive dissonance there would have caused me to leave if I hadn't found another option. And I mean, and everyone has cognitive dissonance. It's simply like digging down until you find where the point of disintegration in your own um, personal schemas happens. Um, but to be actively making choices and demanding that others follow those choices because of that cognitive dissonance is, is where, um, yeah, where pastors, medical professionals, teachers, um, anybody who's sort of in those helping professions, I think is really running into a wall right now. And I mean, that's not to say that others in the past 16 months haven't also run into walls, right? Essential workers um, and people who work hourly entry level, um, you know, minimum wage jobs who were told, you know, your, your employment in this grocery store or this pharmacy is essential to our function in society, but also like, screw you, you have no protections. Mm -hmm. um, those people are exhausted. Um, yeah, I don't want to say like pastors are somehow in this special category of being particularly exhausted. I think our exhaustion is just its own flavor, mm -hmm. but, but this stress of like, what do I I, I cannot make a good decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so what do I do with that? Parents are going through that right now. It's like, what do I do with my kids? Um, school, not school, homeschool, demand digital schooling, demand masks, fight back, you know, like everyone's having a real bad time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, another meaningful truth is that everybody is traumatized. Mm -hmm. and and in ongoing trauma, and typically people do not behave very well inside of trauma. No. Yet I think that for some folks, admitting to the trauma is so vulnerable that, that they can't. And so the defenses become incredibly rigid. I mean, I, I've heard stories from my ICU nurse clients about people with one foot in the grave in the ICU screaming, you know, through gasping for breath yep. that this isn't real. Right. right. And to me, that paints a psychological picture of incredible fear of vulnerability. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so, it's interesting to me, the way that that fear of vulnerability and the denial of reality has paired up with Christian practice because so much of our, we have so many examples in scripture and in basic theological practice around how vulnerability, the experience of the world around us, the incarnation of the self, um, of, of the incarnation of God's self into human flesh, um, the call for us to be active in the world as people who are healers, uh, that the, the disciples and follower of Jesus are met, met, 
meant to proclaim salvation and the Greek root word of salvation and healing is the same. Um, and, and somehow we just lost the plot. Mm. And um, I think that's in part what's breaking a lot of pastors right now is just like, how many years have I been preaching? How many years have these people been part of Christian community? you know, like baptized in the same church that they're currently worshiping in at, you know, 72 years old. And they're still just going like, well, I don't want to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, well, but faith over fear. And it's like, okay. All right. Um, I thought that we had been speaking the same language for this long and we're not. And mm. um, yeah, these competing ideologies that through, I, I really do think um, through consumption of social media and then the way that sort of trickles up or down or sideways, I don't really know how to draw that diagram, um, but the consumption of social media and the way that phrases and memes and ideologies made that's those spaces and then get spread out. Um, mm-hmm was meant to free us and, and connect us in so many beautiful ways, right? This flattening of the world where we can experience so many different realities um, and recognize that they're all part of one great big reality. And instead what we've done is create narrower and narrower realities. Yeah. Are you familiar with um, much of Carl Jung's writings or? Um, you know, I haven't read him since college. Um, and it was mostly just as like an offshoot of Freud and then a little combination with um, some of the analysis of the humanities and then um, whoever wrote uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces and kind of how that all tied in. So it was more on a humanities level than it was on a psychological one. So my apologies for my lack there. No, you don't need to know. I just was curious. Um, uh, the reason I bring it up is I, I read something of a quote of his this week and he um in one of his uh, collected works, and he, he wrote in it, um, we are far better protected against failing crops, inundations, epidemics, and invasions than we are against our own deplorable spiritual inferiority, which seems to have little resistance to psychic epidemics. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Because what we're talking about, in a way, is that when you when you describe social media and how that spreads, we're we're talking about a kind of psychic virology, you know? Yes, definitely. And and how attitudes in a community spread, and how defenses against fear or vulnerability are kind mm-hmm. of taught and modeled because we're not just individuals, we're collective beings too we are really hardwired to need a sense of belonging. No, I, yeah, I totally agree. And I think, um, and, and this is tri- tripping some of the switches in my head again about like, is this why I didn't further my degree in, in I had kind of an interest in psychology and then never furthered uh, a degree in it. And I wonder if part of it was this exposure to primarily older white men being like, see, we all have this collective conscious. And I'm like, okay, but how come then like we didn't advocate for the end of slavery like right away? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We're all sort of connect, like yeah. if we're all connected on this like psychic level, why are we so good at hurting each other? And at the same time, this like, oh, it's because of our wretched humanity, you know, that 
that we've you know been unable to resist this virus this um psychic virology and i'm like well okay yes and um i want to be clear that like so much of social media has also been life-giving for people it was sustaining during the pandemic it's sustaining um and crucial for so many people within the lgbtqia plus community for us to find each other when we feel sort of isolated and alone it's been a huge it's had a huge impact on understanding um, the need for continued social justice as far as America's relationship to people of color because we've been able to spread information. So I don't want to sort of demonize like mm-hmm. all of our psyche nor all of social media, but simply to recognize, I think we were, it's the difficulty, right? If you don't have censorship, if you, you know, if, if there was a stronger build into the Facebook, et cetera, as far as censorship went early on, and they started pulling any content related to Black Lives Matter, that would have tanked the movement in one particular way. And yet, because we didn't have sort of built-in censorship practices, um, anti-vax movements, which have been on the rise for what, 10 years almost now, um, were were able to flourish even as mainstream media, including um, Fox News Entertainment, stopped covering it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it was able to persist within you know Facebook individually run groups. So one of the things that I worry about a lot as a pastor um, and as a member of the body of Christ is h- how do we help people develop critical thinking as far as their religion and spirituality goes, so that whenever they're whenever they encounter content that is stamped with the word Christian in some way, they don't automatically assume, okay, whatever this says is what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through that process as a teenager of like, oh, okay, this like, I'm Christian and this is Christian. So I, wait a second, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you guys are like way homophobic. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a church that was not homophobic. Like something went wrong here. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we teach people those critical thinking points? Um I do think that that is maybe what Jung means by Mm. his language is so, uh, you know, damning, but deplorable (laughs) spiritual inferiority. He Mm. uses the word spiritual interchangeably with, you know, like psychic and, and psyche. And so this idea of being so, so incapable of differentiation, you know, really not taught or to look at our thinking rather than being identified it not taught to look at our feelings rather than being identified with it and it makes us very vulnerable to whatever information suits us yeah it's the it's the opposite of critical thinking you know it's the opposite i don't empathy Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what the words for it would be. And of course, I, I want to admit that, like, as you noted, I'm coming out of a place of 16 months of trauma, um, as so many of us are. And it, to some extent, it feels like people who are anti-vaccine and anti-mask right now are saying that didn't happen. That trauma isn't real. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that I'm not able to speak with um, the kind of graciousness that I would prefer to have towards, towards people. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Me either. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it takes an enormous amount of 
something that I don't always have. I had a client last fall that I think I really hurt because I was not empathetic about how isolated they felt in their early Mm -hmm. 20s. And I, I had um, firm feedback for them about going to a gathering after testing positive for COVID-19. Oh, okay. Yeah. I felt that it was, you know, I got caught up in my thing, like, you know, if, if I, you tell me about harming yourself or harming other people, this is when I come out of my unconditional positive regard and start trying to set up some boundaries, you know, and, and, um, but they were feeling, you know, suicidally depressed due to the isolation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, would, I mean, really, truly would have rather died than spend one more minute alone. Yeah. And that was a hard that was a hard interaction. There wasn't, there wasn't a right way to proceed. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know what either of us could have done differently, but I do know that there was just pain all around. Yeah, it's it's a no good answers situation, um, and I see that I've seen that particularly in my um, senior and elder members who were not familiar with online connectivity. You know, okay, Facebook, FaceTime, you know, any of the other options for digital communication. Um, just I don't know, it was something my grandkids are into, but I'm not interested. And then all of a sudden this became our primary method of interaction. And this thing that they had avoided or, you know, been just sort of neutral about suddenly became our predominant way of being connected. I'm coming to understand how difficult that was and that, you know, for um, a good number of them socializing on Sunday morning, um, like coffee hour and, and being able to see people is a really key part of their socialization. And they did not have resources to fill that. And they were angry about the resources that were provided. Uh, they didn't like, you know, Zoom coffee hour after online worship. They didn't, you know, um, kids or grandkids would try to set up, you know, an iPad or teach them how to Zoom. And they were just mad, you know, angry, um, which is trauma, right? Like <laughs> you, you can't leave your house here's your alternative, but it's difficult to learn and everyone else feels accustomed to it. Um, and there's just this, this um, trauma response of how dare you, I can't believe you're doing this to me, kind of um, anger. And then to be in, a, I think a good amount of that is happening again. Um, just we've, yeah. so many people have felt so trapped and I think a good number of us are just fighting to get out of the cage. It's just how we define the cage and what getting out means is very different. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this creates enormous, you know, divisions and um, really painful 
breakdown or fallout of of communities and relationships that were once so vital right which is another trauma right and it sounds like a lot of what you're going through mhm mm mhm mm and and other people in your position yep yeah i think you know there's there's no good choices there's no perfect choices we'll say that um there's no perfect choices there's no choice that anyone that everyone will be happy with and so the people who have to make the choices um and whether it's one pastor or multiple pastors whether it's you know a pastor alongside a covid preparedness team or a, a church council or you know board of directors or what or elders or whatever the, the comments come back to the pastor like that's that's how the system flows um and to make decisions to agonize over them to wonder and go back and forth and read statistics and try to learn how to be you know suddenly an epidemiologist and virologist along with being the multiple other hats that pastors unprofessionally wear right you know unprofessional therapist unprofessional um, accountant you know all these things that we aren't properly trained for and yet somehow uh end up doing and to know that no matter what decision you make there will be grumbling mm. or worse that decisions that we make may or will affect the atmosphere on sunday mornings will change relationships within the congregation will cause members to leave will cause people to pull their um fiscal support so whatever decisions for example i'm making you know i could certainly go in and be like well you know i I don't care if I have to take a cut in hours because of the decisions that I make, but that's also actually making a decision for everyone that I pastor because now I don't have as many hours available and for the rest of my staff, because if we suddenly lose significant portion of our budget, um, that's not just affecting me, that's affecting the whole work of this ministry. Wow. I know a lot of pastors who, um, have left their congregations, whether they've gone on to another congregation or they have simply left ordained ministry right now. Mm. Um, and the agony of like leaving people in this very, very troubling time. Mm. And yet also saying like, if I'm driving to church, every, if every day that I'm driving into the office, I'm hit with these, you know, intrusive, um, intrusive and, and, um, intrusive thoughts about harming myself yeah. I can't keep doing it like I'm putting myself in you know it's, it's a Simone Biles moment of like I can't keep doing this thing that's going to put me at physical risk yeah um but of course you're not going to get up in the pulpit and say that on a Sunday like hey guys uh I've been working you know 50 to 60 hours a week since the pandemic started alone in my house and constantly praying and sweating over and up late nights and you know unable to um get out of bed in the morning because I'm in agony about these decisions that I'm making, you can't do that in the pulpit. Mm. Um, I don't know. So I think I would. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but you can in certain situations. Um, but if you're pastoring a congregation that is at all that has any sort of division around thought on this, mm. if you were to get up and say, you know, I'm distressed about these decisions and the situation, someone's going to say, well, you should have made a different decision. Yeah, they might. And no, they, they will. <laughs> I mean, they will. And then you can be like, that's not the point. Right. <laughs> Just 
there's a (laughs) very, I am, I'm kind of kidding. It's, um, I have no idea how to be a pastor. So, you know, (laughs) well, and there's also unique pressures. Um, so I'm 36, which it depends on who you ask as far as whether that's still a young adult or like in middle age, whatever. I am perceived as young by my congregation, which was predominantly older than me when I started. We've grown in younger adults now. And I was assigned female at birth. I'm five foot five. Um, Like I am the age of many people's children Mm. in the congregation, which means if I expose vulnerability in a pulpit, Mm. it has a very different reaction than if I were a um, an old, a man in my fifties who has sort of established, like if a man in his fifties gets into a pulpit and cries about how, um, spiritually and emotionally tormented, tormented he is about trying to lead a congregation during 16 months of a traumatizing pandemic that has at this point, no, still no end in sight. It's a very different reaction than if a woman in her early mid thirties does it. Um, And so that also plays into that discussion for a lot of my friends and I who are in the same age range of going like, we can't express vulnerability in the pulpit because we're already fighting for some semblance of authority in a system that privileges age, um, whiteness, maleness, and um, and cis heterosexism. Mm. So. But yeah, for a pastor to display vulnerability or, you know, even to along with the scriptures, like we have evidence of um, like, I would sooner be dead than continue this work uh, or, or swear words in whatever context in scriptural, yeah. like in scriptural stories, um, a pastor to get in the pulpit and do that, especially a pastor who is under the age of 40, not male, um, not um, cis and straight, not white. Um, so I just want to clarify, cause this is an audio medium. I am white, but so like a lot of pastors who are experiencing additional pressures of the trauma of the pandemic. And what do we do with that now are also in these categories of marginalization within pastoral roles. And so there's this balance of how do I, like how much capital do, have I earned? Um, how much authority do I actually have versus when am I going to get outvoted? Mm, yeah. And, you know, and, and churches have been a uh, competitive, <sighs> I don't like just throwing everything into the bucket of like capitalism has ruined everything. And yet, uh, <laughs> like churches have been in a capitalistic competitive market since, <sighs> I mean, really since the establishment of freedom of religion in America, to some extent, I mean, we could probably blame it on Luther, but that's just a cheap shot because every we can blame everything on Luther. Um <laughs> But this, this sense of like, people have other options. Um, there was a time in Christian practice in which there were, you know, there was the one church um, in the Western uh, Northern Hemisphere, i.e. The, the Roman Catholic Church, and you divided people up geographically, and that's the church you went to. And if you wanted to be saved and you wanted to, like, go to heaven when you died, you had to go to church and you had to do what the priest said. Mm-hmm. And now churches in, you know, any given congregation is in competition with any other congregation within driving range or online. And Mm. the hope would be that that would create like really wonderful innovation and differentiation, like great, this church can do this thing, this church can do that thing. 
And instead, what we often have is this sense of like, well, this church is doing this. Why aren't we doing that? This church has this. Why aren't we doing that? Well, this church is, you know, is singing without masks in the sanctuary and everybody's fine. I'm like, how? Yeah, they're not. Um, but, but I can't prove that because I got to be at church on Sunday. So I can't go hop around to other churches and I can't really call up another pastor and be like, okay, tell me how many people do you have that have COVID right now? Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause they're not going to tell me honestly. No. Um, so there's just, it's just a lot. So much. Whitney, it's just a lot. So much. And it's not like we're just talking about Sunday morning. Mm-mm. You also, I mean, one of my best friends in town is a pastor of a enormous Methodist church. Mm-hmm. And, um, she, you know, she's also doing funerals and weddings and hospice visits and baptisms yeah. and figuring out how to do that safely and in a way that still allows families to gather or grieve or celebrate or be held. And all of that is a risk and none of it is satisfying over Zoom. And she certainly didn't get into pastoral care in order to create distance between herself and other people. No. So it's a it's a painful ongoing agony of figuring out safety and connection and how to hold those both alongside one another. And all I keep saying is like, make sure you're in your own therapy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I um I restarted therapy because I've been in and out of it for 22 years. That sounds about right. Um, I've been in and out of therapy for 22 years and I restarted it about six months ago. So we were doing telehealth Yeah. and yeah, it wasn't as easy. Yeah. Things would cut out. Um, it wasn't like we didn't establish a rapport as easily. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to do in person now. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I texted my therapist and said, you know what? I literally don't feel like I can drive today. Mm. Um, and so I was able to just like lay on my floor and turn on the telehealth like option and lay on a yoga mat and just like legitimately just sob. Mm. Um, and that was really nice actually to not have to like, okay, I have to like tamp down my emotions enough to get in the car and drive and then like make it through the reception area, which there's no one in the reception area, but like still there could be. Um, and I live with social anxiety. So like that is not improved by that whole situation. And then also like, okay, we got to close the therapy session at 50 minutes with enough time for me to like tamp down my emotions again, and then get back in the car and drive somewhere and be safe. Like, nope, I actually needed to not have to have those 20 minutes on either side where I had to sort of close things off. Yeah. like there's this one moment when it was useful, but most of the time, no, it's not, it's not a pleasant alternative option. It's not something that we're doing because it's better. It is something that we're doing because it is better than the alternative, which is meeting in person. I mean, not for this last case when I called in, but like we have been doing virtual, like virtual worship or at home worship or however we want to term it. We've been doing that to try to save lives. and that is going to feel uncomfortable in the same way that like driving the speed limit instead of going as fast as you want saves lives in the same way that um, paying taxes saves lives in the same way that no longer preaching 
um, hateful ideologies against women or people of color or um, people within the queer and trans community saves lives and yet it causes discomfort. Like, yes, Jesus never promised comfort. No, no. Jesus said this, this is going to be difficult. Yeah, they modeled it, you know, to right. absolute extreme. Yes. <laughs> if you want to walk this path, right. it might hurt this much. Right. This isn't here for your convenience and comfort. Sorry. No. And somehow somehow it has become for our convenience and comfort. Somehow we've, and when I say somehow, I'm summarizing like several <laughs> hundred years of weirdly blended culture and ideology um, because we only have so much time on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but like somehow we have taken this message and been like the true persecution of Christians is making us wear masks. Right. And it's like, I would love for you to go back in time and explain that to the apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. Like who half of whose letters are about making yourself uncomfortable for the benefit of the other. Like this is how we'll structure worship so that everyone is that who comes in can understand what's going on. Yes. That means that something like you must meet your lower brother where he's at, you know, using the traditional masculine Greek language, but like you need to meet your lower brother when he's where he's at and not confuse him with your higher spirituality and your capacities for things like, Mm, I just, I, it, it's hard. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but oh, I'm good. Please do. <laughs> I have, you know, I, I kind of deconstructed my relationship to the organized practice of church. Great. Um, in 2005, um, I felt like I had to do that in order to to, I felt like the, actually the Holy Spirit prompted me to do that. It was, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a, a wild ride, but staying connected to and in, in some kind of communion with, with what I call God meant I couldn't, I couldn't belong to this, you know, church organization and adhere to its attitudes. Yeah. Um, and in the, you know, so that was 16 years ago. And um, in that, in those ensuing years, I have often thought that what I'm, what I'm observing and hearing from a lot of self-identified Christians just doesn't sound anything at all like Christianity. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the difficulties is like, when you said earlier, we've lost the plot. It's like, that feels like the most kind of succinct way to say it like the the gospel is gone from this ideology yeah. i don't know i don't know what this is but this certainly doesn't feel like anything i learned from jesus's life and teachings yeah i had to i've been just lying down um a lot lately um because sometimes it just feels exhausting to move mm. and i think you know there's there's lots of factors going into that but I had to lie down and actually like have a good cry the other day when I had this moment of thinking about the development of the vaccines um, and that there were experimental trials going on. And I mean, I don't even know how to sign up for an experimental trial, but the fact that there was not some faith wide conviction among Christians that 
Jesus calls me to take up my cross. I believe that there's an afterlife. I believe that that afterlife will be positive for me. Yeah, experiment on me for the good of humanity. And it just, I had this moment of like, we, whole, holy crap. Yeah, we missed something like we, we like. Actually though, I I did sign up. Okay. And they, um, they did, they rejected me outright because I um, said, I don't go anywhere or see anyone. So it's not in a very effective. Right. It's not going to test how effective it is. Yeah. (laughs) That's complicated. Interesting. Um, And I I don't want to, in all of that, I don't want to speak against um, people who have historically accurate hesitancies about the medical practice, because we absolutely have experience in all sorts of levels and um, marginalized communities of people being experimented on by the medical field. Um, And at the same time, yeah, but like, I, I actually think about someone like my mom, who is a um, PhD in pediatric nursing, retired, mm-hmm. retired. Mm-hmm. She volunteered for the Moderna trial. She also then came out of retirement to um, give vaccines at, you know, 67, 68 years old, but before she was vaccinated in order to, you know, move us toward collective health and healing. She didn't, you know, hold herself up and avoid everybody, nor insist that her freedom was being impinged upon. There was a, you know, she was sewing masks that were children's size to take to the children's hospital. She's doing contact tracing. Um, she identifies as a Christian, but but not cult, you know, not as a as a cultural identity it's not wrapped up in politics it's like it's she was raised going to church she was introduced to the bible she committed to um you know she committed to its teachings and that seems really sincere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but there's no like giant cross on her door or a bumper sticker on her car or you know, um, I, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, we're looking for a plumber who's a believer. I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, there's, you know, like, and see as, and as a queer person, for me, that would be like, if anybody handed me like a business card, I've done this. People will hand me business cards and it has like the little Jesus fish on it. And I'm like, and that one is going in the recycling. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You will not, this is not going to be a safe situation in my house. And I'm not only a Christian, but I'm a professional Christian. <laughs> um, and yet like, ooh, nope, they, nope. The, that, that cultural identification of like, I need people to know that I am Christian. Yes. Um, yes, I don't think I've not, heard her say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and... And yeah, what does that mean? Why is that? I mean, that's a whole other podcast series, really. Of like yeah, yeah. the importance of, of the importance of identity of like I need to people to know that I am a Christian. Um, and what does that mean? And why is that? That kind of ideology is one that I feel at best uncomfortable with, and most often unsafe in. Yeah. If someone were to call me right, like people, I get added. To mailing lists all the time like oh we're gonna do a like a mission for the city or a walk for this or do and I'm like "Mm -mm. no thank you because I know what I I have a very good sense of what's going to happen here when I show up with my people when I show up embodied as I am and with my people who are embodied as they are 
um, this is going to be an unsafe situation. And what is that? What is that scripture? Um, uh, you know, they'll know by your deeds. What is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They will know us by our deeds. Yeah. Um, so Not Jesus particularly, right. Our words, presumably. Yeah. 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 Jesus particularly says like, you, I mean, you see this in the gospel of John and also in uh, the first letter of John is like talking about the, you know, that we will be known, um, like the true, those who truly are abiding in Christ are known by their acts of love essentially. And also uh, Matthew 25, where you think about um, the, the separation of the sheep and goats at the end of time, um, which like, you want to be with the sheep, you want to be a sheep, um, <laughs> is, uh, it's, we're just tying right back around to how we started. Um, you know, the, the sheep who said, to whom Jesus, um, the, um, the throned Lord says, you know, you fed me, like you took care of me well done, good and faithful servant. And they say, we, we never saw you. And he says, you, you know, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was naked. And they said, well, we, you know, whatever you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And the same thing is said to the goats. Like you saw me hungry and you did not feed me. You saw me thirsty. You did not clothe me. I was in prison. You did not visit me. And, um, I was sense of, like compromised, right. I was vulnerable in a pandemic and you did not wear a mask in my presence. Yeah. Right. And this, this sense of people saying like, well, we never saw you and, and they're calling him Lord. They're recognizing in this parable, Jesus as, as the, the, the ruler or the master of the universe and saying like, well, we never saw you. And, and it's not, well, we didn't know that you existed or we weren't you know raised in the church or whatever. It's literally, you didn't help the people who were in need. Hoofda. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not great. It's not great. It's not going to look great for a lot of us. And I mean, like I torment myself over that passage a great deal of like the need in the world is bottomless. And one of the reasons that I have chosen at this moment in time to continue to align myself with some form of organized Christianity. Um, although like if this podcast drops and I've quit to become a bartender, you know, you all, um, can understand why the, it's just, it's just been really hard. It's really hard to, um, to stay within the institution, but I choose to stay within, within the institution or at least alongside it because the need of the world is so bottomless. And I want to be part of a system that might address it in ways that feel bigger than just what I can do. Yeah. I um, mean, that's why anybody joins up with like any nonprofit organization, right. Um, is, is the hope of being able to do some good in the world beyond simply my sphere of influence. Yeah. You know, this is an audio experience for anyone mm -hmm. listening, but I have seen you tear up a number of times mm -hmm. and um, I'm just struck by the way that love seems to persevere within you, despite all the resistance. And all oh, that's Jesus. That's not me. I'm a very resentful, angry person. Um, <laughs> Like I'm an, I know this, I'm an Enneagram one. Um, I, um, like resentment is something that I nurture well. Um, and, and doing things right is something that I believe in and any practice of graciousness that I've learned, um, or, um, you know, in, um, 
in, in therapeutic talk, I think you call it unconditional positive regard. For me, it's the recognition of the face of Christ in every person. Like it's, it's different language for the same thing of like, we're putting ourselves to a higher cause and putting aside some of the knee jerk judgment and saying like, something else needs to happen here that I can have an impact on. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's, I mean, not maybe. I'm certain that that's part of the exhaustion for pastors and doctors and therapists and teachers and anyone else in a caring profession is like how often we put our own um, needs and wants and judgments and assumptions and boundaries aside to care for other people and then to not see that reciprocated. Yeah. Um, Whether back to us or to, you know, like, okay, I'm you know, I'm, I'm giving this to you. I want you to give it to some, why are you not sharing it with anybody? Yeah. <laughs> why are you just keeping all of this, you know, positive emotion coming towards yourself and not sharing it with others? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's absolutely what's causing in so many helping professions, the terms compassion fatigue, right. Of just like, um, we've been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out in the hopes of getting ourselves to a better place. And now we're finding we're totally empty and no, and it feels like there's a significant percentage of the population that does not want to pour back in. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's really demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And, and you and a lot of other caring professionals have left that yep. that demoralizing outpost yep. um and i don't i don't blame anyone for doing that yeah yeah i don't either um no i don't i mean i've seen um lots of friends and colleagues leave or move on to different calls in different ways um and like some of them have you know, felt more like (laughs) some of them have felt like this was a, you know, a helpful step for everyone and was kind of the right place, the right thing to do in that person's trajectory. And some of it is like, this is a trauma response and neither of those are right or wrong, right? There's parts of it that is like spiritually where the congregation and the pastor have grown to it's, you know, like time for new work. And some of it is this person is broken either by the congregation or by the systems around them or, you know, combination of both. And it's, it's, it's just really hard. And again, I don't want to, you know, augment us above others and say like, Oh, we have it, you know, so hard. I got called out for that um, early in the pandemic. Um, Hmm. And I certainly not what I'm trying to say is that, you know, we somehow have a unique difficult position, but that we do have a difficult position and that a good number of us are pretty exhausted and at our breaking point. Like I keep saying, I'm like, the, like the edge of the cliff, I've got my toes dug in and I'm trying really hard to stay on, but like, mm. hand me half a paraglider and I might take off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Just what are you doing to take care of yourself, to, to kind of step back from the cliff and go to a retreat? in the valley you know there what what does it look like to say it is righteous and good for me to also have boundaries around my time and i need 
I need to invest in restorative practices? It's a great question. Um, it's a difficult question to answer because most, a good number of our ELCA congregations, for example, have been hurting financially in the past 16 months. Um, some people saw, you know, financial dips, even if they um, took out PPP loans. And um, we're getting messages from our bishops and our churchwide bishops saying like, you know, it's really important to rest, to take a Sabbath, to take a sabbatical. And it's like, yeah, and who's gonna, who's gonna step in? Who's like, um, I took a sabbatical for three weeks in November and was already, you know, exhausted and bottomed out again in January mm. um, because the, the need and the pain and the trauma is just so big for mm. me and for the congregation and the world as a whole. Um, so what am I doing? So um, I actually did something that I've never done in my entire life. I'm still offended at myself as a good Midwesterner and that is that two weeks ago, um, I was in tech study with a bunch of my colleagues um, that we do on Zoom most of the time and then in person every, every now and then. Um, and I had been having a really bad week um, and I was crying. And somebody said like, what do you need? And the correct response to that in Midwestern is, oh no, I'm okay, like we're fine. You know, it's a, this was, it was just good to be heard, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And I looked up and I actually said, okay, here's what I need done on Thursday. Here's what I need done on Friday. Here's what I need done on Saturday. And people went, oh, and then they started lining up like, okay, you need, um, so I'd sprained my wrist and like, we're doing house remodeling. And so, um, like, oh, you need Ikea furniture put together before the contractor comes in to install a vanity. Great. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, you need this thing done in your yard. Great. I can do And people started actually like helping. Mm -hmm. Um, so I am trying to more actively ask for help. Um, I am, I can tell that my self-care, um, my basic self-care practices have bottomed out a bit recently. So one of the key things for me is breakfast before coffee. Um, mm. and so I'm like doing breakfast prep at night mm. so that it's not like, I can't, I can't do it. I have to have coffee before I can make my coffee kind of situation. Um, so that's just a self-knowledge practice. And um, I'm also trying valiantly or unvaliantly not to overfunction because okay. I distinctly overfunctioned for the first eight months of the pandemic. Um, like, okay, we're going to make this amazing. We're going to find ways to do this well. We're going to like, you know, I can find ways to make at home church feel super great. And it just, I'm just exhausted and I can't do as much as I normally could. Um, and I'm trying to be okay with that, but I'm also just trying to limit myself mm -hmm. and say like, I only have so much energy. I can't commit to this thing or that thing. I'm going to pass this thing on, um, mm -hmm. or I'm going to simply not try to do, you know, something else. Um, and that's been, hard. As I mentioned, I'm an Enneagram one and therefore a perfectionist and was a straight A kid most of my life until chemistry. Chemistry sucked. Um, but so this practice of like, you know, putting the basic practices of therapy into, into work of like, I don't have to be perfect. Getting something done is good enough right now. Um, and if I am the only one whose energy is keeping something going, that might be a sign. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm trying to listen to that. Um, yeah, that's good. I also am just being really honest with my wife um, about where I'm at emotionally. And she's also honest with me. And so we just try to keep each other like attentive to our needs and aware of how we can help each other. Um, and so I know that not everybody has that relationship with a partner. And I would encourage that like finding a friend or two to develop those relationships with of like honesty without responsibility. Mm. Like my wife is not responsible for my feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not responsible for hers. Um, and, and so then how do we, how do we practice like receiving each other's emotions offering if we want, you know, space for processing or suggestions, but not taking on the responsibility of fixing them. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Fine, last final one. I also spend a lot of time in scripture because it turns out that a lot of people were miserable in scripture and having a really terrible time. And I feel better when that happens. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Here's my final question. Mm-hmm. What is one thing you wish everyone knew? Wow. Okay. Um, there is an old children's book. The best known version of it is Old Turtle, but there was a sequel called Old Turtle and the Broken Truth. And the Broken Truth is a story of a star that falls to earth um, and it splits in two on the way down and only one half of the, the star or the truth is found. And it is clearly broken and yet still has um, a grain of truth to it. And the story then goes in these beautiful watercolors um, of, you know, these awful, awful battles that people, humans rage over it, um, trying to claim this truth for themselves. And eventually a young girl like goes to see Old Turtle and is like, why is there so much strife in the world? And Old Turtle explains the truth is broken and you need to find the other half. And she goes on this great journey and she finds the other half and the two truths are finally united again and be able to proclaim one whole truth. The broken truth over which people battled to claim as their own is you are loved, which is a true truth. Mm. It is not broken in and of itself, but it was broken off from its essential other half, which was and so is everyone else. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm. I got it. It's so good. And thank <sighs> you for doing this, for having this conversation with me, for, for speaking about something that um, I know is not only afflicting you mm-hmm. and, and giving voice to that, that, that others might remember the other half of that broken truth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It was really an honor. I'm so grateful to Emmy for speaking with me and for ministering to all of us here today. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other. Thank you.